Good morning, family. Good to see you. Hope you're well. Excited to share the word with you. You can open your Bibles to Esther 6. Here are my notes. I wrote very small. When I'm done with this, we will be all done. So about 4.30 p.m. No, I'm just kidding. This is uh, This was particularly exciting for me to see the Lord start to bring things together in the book of Esther like he does in chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 6 and 7, in my humble opinion, is a culmination, maybe even a crescendo of all of these underlying things that we've been seeing. Now it will leave no doubt. I love the phrase that uh, Brother Chad let us in weeks ago now. But as he kind of summed up Esther, he summed it up as God uses and works through important, I'm sorry, imperfect Imperfect people, God uses and works through imperfect people and seemingly impossible situations to accomplish his plans. Seemingly impossible situations. We've seen hints of that all through chapter 1 through 5 of Esther. Chapter 6 and 7, I firmly believe that we are going to see a crescendo of impossible coincidences. Impossible coincidences. And we're going to see the Lord turn the corner. We're going to see the Lord take a dire situation, a situation that seemed very hopeless. Let me summarize it to you. There was a corrupt government. That corrupt government had seemingly become more and more and more corrupt as it continued on. It seemed like the trend for the entire company or company country was continuing to go down and down and down. It seemed like as the darkness continued, it seemed like there were more and more evidences of not just a a different idea, but an actual evil philosophy trying to rule the day. It seemed that as we went deeper and deeper into the history of the book of Esther, as well as the book of Esther, that things got worse and worse. Anyone feel similar today? Anyone take a look at our country and say, oof, oof. I'm shocked at how applicable the time and the book of Esther is to your life today. And just like Mordecai said to Esther in the famous phrase, for such a time as this, I believe not only are you here to serve God for such a time as this, but you're hearing teaching from the book of Esther for such a time as this. I believe God wants to open our eyes wider and wider to his amazing truth and allow us to step further and further towards him, closer and closer towards him through obedient and bold living for him. So that as God continues to work the impossible through imperfect people, As we become ready, willing, and able to be his vessels, I think he's going to do amazing things. There was a battle during this time. There was a battle for the identity of the heart of man. And the the kingdom had pretty much gone full away from God. But you had this remnant of Jews still sticking around there. God's chosen people. And even their identity had been clouded. It was uh, hinted at us that maybe they were even there out of an element of disobedience, right? 
So their identity had even in Christ had even in God had even been compromised to a degree. And so we need to understand that there are many, many dark forces working behind the scenes in the book of Esther. There are many dark forces working today in your life and in your society and in your world. And one of the key battles is a battle for our identity, the battle for our identity. We pause for a commercial break. This is an announcement that will be shared later. We don't usually share a lot of announcements during the teaching time, but this one fit just so perfectly. There's a special speaker this coming weekend, and, and uh, you'll hear more in the announcements. But listen to what she's teaching on. Identity. Who do your children think they are, and why does it matter? I'd submit to you that the very thing that she will be speaking on is the very battle of Esther 6, the whole book, and I would suggest to you that it's the very battle of what we're wrestling with today. We should check this out. But in addition to that, we should understand that there is an enormous battle raging. There was a battle in the book of Esther, good against evil. There's a battle today in Dubuque, Iowa. Are we ready to stand with the Lord and follow his lead? I believe he wants to bring enormous victory, enormous victory. Father, we turn to you with an impossible task. Take a, a book and stories thousands of year old, years old and somehow uh, understand them to where we can learn your will for us. Well, it's not impossible through you. Your spirit has, has weaved these words of your holy scripture together, including the book of Esther. Your spirit has uh, worked in each of us to prepare us for today, to get us ready, Lord, for a clear message from you. Father, whether we obey that message or not remains to be seen. And I would pray that you'd be working in our hearts right now to give us obedient hearts so that as you lay out a clear path for us, we will follow enthusiastically and boldly to accomplish amazing things through your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, chapter 6 is so filled with, quote, coincidences, which we know already by the book of Esther. Are those really coincidences? No, that was a little weak. Are those really coincidences? No, they're not. These chapters are so filled with these coincidences that it just becomes remarkable. In fact, some of the Bible, Bible translators have even added a couple of, of words. I don't believe they changed the meaning one bit, but as Mark uh, will tell you, they're not necessarily in the original language when it says, as it happened, as it happened. Am I right, Brother Mark? So much so are these chapters pushing and, and helping and understand this idea that coincidences aren't really coincidences that I think you're going to be shocked. So this idea of as it happened or just so happened, it's not just so happened. But I think you're going to see an enormous number here. So I need a couple of workers. I'm not even going to ask if they're willing to volunteer. I've just already assigned them in my mind. I hope they don't get ticked at me. But I need uh, Brother Wes... And brother Noah, and Ed, you back them up, okay? We're going to count, we're going to count, as I read this passage, we're going to count the coincidences, okay? So three gentlemen, get your, get your Bibles ready. And as I read this, I want you to listen and keep track of the number of coincidences that, oh, Tyler, you just missed it. I was about to give you an assignment, but, but your, your timing was impeccable. I gave it to Edward instead, so you're good. The coincidences are, are amazing. Now, 
good news, guys, don't feel pressure. There's not an inspired number of coincidences that I'm looking for. These are your observations, okay? But tell, count, count. I think it'll be interesting. I think it'll be insightful. So let's read chapter 6 of Esther together. Verse 1, that night the king had trouble sleeping. That's one, guys. That night, the king had trouble sleeping, so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? The king asked. His attendants replied, Nothing has been done for him. Who is that in the outer court? The king inquired as it happened. Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he had prepared. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is out in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, Whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes as well as a horse that the king himself was ridden, one with royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials and let him see them that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do as you have said for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you've suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed them on the king's own horse and led him through the city square shouting, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Man, can you imagine what Haman was thinking at that point? The guy he hated was now getting all the honor that Haman had just dreamed up thinking that he would receive it from the king. Insult to injury right there, my friends. Verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home, dejected and completely humiliated. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, Since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. While they were still talking, just so happens, while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. What'd you get, Wes? How many? Okay, what do you think, Noah? Okay, what do you think, Edward? Okay, I I like it. No inspired number here. I would guess that there's even more than we would think being woven together behind woven together behind the the appearances here for quote coincidences. And I think even down to the timing of when the eunuchs came to get Haman was no coincidence. And so what do we have? Well, quickly, we have the continuation of chapter 5. We have Esther being led uh, by God, I believe, through the advice of Mordecai to attempt 
to really save and turn the tide of all this evil that is happening. And then you have God behind the sweet scenes, behind the first banquet that Esther invited the king and Haman to, and, be- and the next second banquet that she had invited him to. Between that, you have all of these things that God is doing. The king couldn't sleep. The king chose to listen to the, the records. The open page went to the Mordecai record. Mordecai hadn't been honored. So then Haman happened to be in the outer court. Haman was asked what he should do to honor him. Haman came up with some really great stuff thinking it was for him, but it was for Mordecai, right? And it goes on and on and on. What are the chances, you think? I used to teach biology, so I talked about the uh, probabilities, genetic probabilities. I won't bore you, don't worry. But it's amazing, a simple one. A simple one. What's the probability that a mother will give birth to a boy? Anyone know? One out of two. One over two. What's the chance that she'll give birth to a girl? One out of two. After she's had a boy, what's the chance that the next kid will be a boy? One out of two. But what's the odds of that mom having four boys in a row? One out of, yeah, what'd you say? Changes dramatically, doesn't it? One out of 16. How about lining up 10 boys in a row? Whoo, right? Slim to none, right? What are the probabilities of all of these circumstances happening in chapter six so that it just so happened that these circumstances are perfectly setting up God's work in chapter 7. Don't forget, what did Mordecai want, what did Haman rather want done to Mordecai? He wanted him hung and stuck on a pole dead, right? Is it a coincidence that God weaved these events together so that the day before Mordecai was going to be, or Haman, the day of, Haman was going to encourage that Mordecai be killed, that instead the king honored Mordecai? Is it interesting to you that the way he honored him, really orchestrated by Haman, was a very public display of approval? Did you notice that? How would it look for the king if day one he publicly put Mordecai through all the streets saying, this is a man I honor, and day two he hung him on a pole? Would that look good for a king? That'd be embarrassing. God was weaving all these amazing things together so that he could do the impossible. And he was going to use Esther and he was going to use Mordecai. He was even going to use King and Haman and all these others that their hearts were way away from the Lord. God will use what he will use, my friends, to work his impossible works. And then we go to chapter 7 and we start to see the culmination of a lot of these impossibilities starting to come through. Gentlemen, if you want to count again, that'd be great. Verse 1 of chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. Oh, I forgot one. Sorry. Why was it so significant that the eunuchs came and got Mordecai right when his advisors were telling him, don't mess around with Mordecai anymore? If Haman would have had time to really think through this advice they were giving him, the advice they were giving him is, Haman, 
don't mess with Mordecai. When you mess with Mordecai, it's going to lead to your doom. Did I interpret that correctly? Take a look at your Bible. If you mess with Mordecai, that man is going to lead to your doom. Now, are you like me? Do you think on things? Do you kind of chew on stuff? Do you stew on it? And a lot of times after you've had some good time to think about it, you'll say, oh, yep, you know what? I better change my actions on that. I better shift my strategy a little there. You following me on that? How much time did Haman have to shift his strategy between hearing the bad news and being taken to the banquet with Esther? How much time? What's it say? Immediately, the eunuchs came to get him. Was that an accident? God was working even to foil and thwart Haman's abilities, his intellect. And make no mistake, Haman was a sharp dude. You do not get to Haman's position without being incredibly intelligent. Some commentators believe that Haman was even aided in his intellect by demonic forces. Some believe that there wasn't just normal human wisdom going on in Haman, but there was some supernatural wisdom going on through demonic forces. That these were not accidents, that these were not... Uh, mere manly thoughts, that there was a spiritual heavenly battle brewing and going on. See how powerful this is? Good against evil. If you ask one of the youth group, Jerry, elbow Ben and ask him this, what do we know about the battle that's going on right now? Is it physical or is it spiritual? What do you think, youth? You're kind of quiet. What do you think? Spiritual is exactly right spiritual battle going on. This is not just mere humans, my friends. This is a spiritual battle that you are part of today in Dubuque, Iowa, USA. Same thing here. There was a spiritual battle going on and there was punch and counterpunch between the spiritual heavenly forces of God and the demonic forces of Satan. Punch and then counterpunch, chess move and then counter move. It's amazing. It's amazing. But through it all, you see God working in pretty unbelievable ways. So let's look at chapter 7 and let's see if some of those coincidences now are going to come to fruition, are going to help out some of the activities that we have here. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. On this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request I'll give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. Queen Esther replied, If I found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we'd merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Now I'll pause. Picture yourself as Haman there. (laughs) Uh, You with me? Oh boy. Haman grew pale before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. 
Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In a despair, in despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining, just as the king was returning from the palace garden. The king exclaimed, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? He didn't have to say anything else. Look at the next verse. As soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Then Arbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. Coincidence after coincidence. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Understand this. How were the law of Medes and Persians signed? They were unchangeable. When the Jews had, had learned that their death warrant was signed, stamped with the ring, unchanged, it's a done deal. Chapter 5 left us with a done deal. The Jews will be annihilated and wiped out. Done. Impossible to change that. And in the span of two chapters, you see God weave dozens of coincidences together to do the impossible. Do you realize what just happened in the span of these short verses? God completely flipped the entire script. He completely thwarted and twisted and turned and completely spun all the negative things that were lined up to now be completely in the favor of God and the Jews. Did you see that? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's how your God works. There's a phrase that says the the darkest part of the night is right before the what? Right before the dawn. Well, that's not just a poetic phrase. That seems to be how life works. Have you felt that? Have you experienced that? Some of you have gone through some rough sickness. Some of your loved ones are going through treatments. And as you get to that point where just more and more treatment and more and more struggling, and then the dawn breaks, and God brings relief, and God brings healing. Have you experienced that? Have you gone through a conflict with a person and it just gets deeper and deeper and more troubling and you lose more and more sleep and then the dawn breaks and the Lord brings a breakthrough? This was an incredibly dark, dark, dark time. It was the darkest part of the night for Mordecai, for Esther, for an entire chosen nation. And God broke the dawn at just the right moment. But I guess I just want to remind you that God doesn't work differently now. I should say, God hasn't changed his doing of the impossible. And as you wake up and you live in a world where bluntly stated, it feels hopeless, it feels like it's a done deal, it feels like Lev said, we just better get prepared for persecution. God can work. God can change things around. God can do miracles. I love milkshakes. There's a turn. Oof, what's that transition? 
Don't you love milkshakes? They're easy to eat. They go down smooth. Doesn't take much work at all, right? Well, the Bible tells us that his word is like that. There are milkshakes of the word. There's milk of the word. It's easy to understand. It's easy to even buy into, right? Well, good news. We just enjoyed a good milkshake together. Bad news is we've got some meat that we need to eat for the last 17 minutes here, okay? I just shared with you the milkshake application and understanding of Esther chapter 6 and 7. And a lot of places we could probably close in prayer right here, right? But we're not going to because God wants us to go deeper. God wants us to understand more fully how he would have you as an imperfect person serve him and work for him to do the impossible. So enjoy the milkshake. What's the milkshake? That God worked enormous coincidences, amazing blessings. He did the impossible. He's the God of the impossible. He's the God of second chances. He wants to bring you deliverance. When the night seems darkest, keep going. The dawn of God's blessing is right around the corner. Isn't that excellent? That's good. Take that home. Be in, 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 be strengthened. Be encouraged. That's the milkshake. Now we got some work to do, my friends. How would God have us live? How would have God, us, God have us live? Well, you need to go into uh, the history of last week. Remember, Lev prepared us mightily for a very true and ultraly, a very, very important concept. Just like Mordecai, just like Esther, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just like Daniel, keep going. Just like these men and women of God's choosing, we need to be ready to stand firm. Do you remember that message from last week? Loud and clear, powerful, powerful. And that's exceptionally true. We need that. I believe chapter six and seven are calling us to deeper, more committed faith, more ambitious goals to see God work and more willingness of his people to risk it all for Christ to see him do amazing things. Go back to six and seven of Esther. I hope you can see that the paper that I handed out, take that with you. That's brother Adrian's work again to also teach through. That'll be a perfect reminder. And even while I'm talking, don't hesitate to find different points. That's a great reminder of all of this story that we've just tackled. But as you're making notes, make a note. Here it is. Mordecai and Esther did not just stand firm. They did not just stand ready to brave persecution and to stand for God's truth. But they ran towards the danger. They went head first, headlong, directly into the storm to not only be ready for persecution and to be ready to stand for God, which is essential, but to be part of the change and the solution to see God do something even more amazing. Are you ready? What happened here? You've got a man and a woman not just being content with God, with the death sentence they were given. Not just ready to go through the persecution that was scheduled graciously and godly and ready to honor God through it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the story that you see where they stood, they literally just stood, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, told them bow. They said, no, we got to stand and we're going to stand. 
And God can deliver us even if he won't, we're not going to bow. And God did an amazing miracle to deliver them, right? Mordecai stood. He didn't bow. But now we see Mordecai and Esther not only standing, refusing to bow to the tyranny, but they are going to run towards the storm to see God work even more powerfully. It had the origins back in verse 4, on chapter 4, rather. Chapter 4. And I'm going to suggest four, four obedience points that I believe God is telling you to run into the storm. Number one is prayer. Number one is prayer. In Esther chapter 4, verse 16... She says, okay, Mordecai, if we're going to run into this storm, first thing we're going to do is we're going to fast. And what I believe associates that with that is pray. We're going to fast and pray. And I want to challenge you, brothers and sisters, that God is calling you to be prayer warriors. Prayer warriors. And God is eager for you to pray. And to not just pray sheepishly, but to pray in faith for God to do amazing things. What do we see on this? What do we see on this? Well, we're told in the scripture to pray for our governing authorities. We're told in Corinthians to pray for the unsaved. Here's a challenge. Have you prayed for Joe Biden's salvation? Keep it up. Keep it up. Have you prayed for these other uh, political, behind-the-scenes political? All of these people, are you praying for them? We need to be doing that. We need to be dedicated to pray that God will save these world leaders and that, one, that he will give them insight and true wisdom from God. That's a bold prayer. Does your heart feel like praying for people that you disagree with? Mine sure doesn't. Do you ever get to that point where it's hard to pray for someone because you're really mad at them? Mine sure does. God calls us to pray. He calls us to pray for our leaders and pray for the salvation of those. And I would urge you to put it on your notes right now. I need to be praying more boldly. Secondly, pray for revival. Pray for revival. One article I read suggests that there's been five great American revivals. Google it, it'll come right up. You historians can check me on this. From the 1730s to the 1970s, there were five great Christian revivals. By the way, Dorothy and Ralph were saved out of the revival in the, in the 70s. Isn't that interesting? And as she explained to us one morning at prayer, it said it was fascinating. We were praying for revival. We were saved or or people were praying for revival. They were saved. The revival continued and Dorothy and Ralph and many others understood that God would have us lead. We're the next generation. We're the next generation to keep working for God, to see God do amazing things of revival in this country. And we saw that. I'd suggest through 1988, we saw that. The 70s were very dark. You remember that. And yet God started to work and God started to change things and God did miracles and amazing things and thousands and millions of men and women were saved and they went on to lead for the Lord. Are you praying for revival? And I would suggest to us that sometimes we don't pray for revival because we're afraid of being disappointed. We're afraid of being disappointed. I see three options right now and I'm being real blunt with you. 
One, the Lord could come tomorrow. Amen. Bring it on. He could come today. Amen. Bring it on. I'm ready. Are you ready? But I can't stop and just wait around for that. Two, persecution could get way worse. And you could be persecuted. And you could be deemed a criminal. And you could be executed. And as miserable as that sounds, what did Paul say about that kind of death? It's gain. It's gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the second option that I can sincerely see coming for us as a country. Third, God could do revival. God could pull an Esther 6 and 7 and flip all of this on its head, my brothers and sisters. Do you believe that? He can do that. Are you praying for that? Why am I so emphatic about you praying for that? Because Jesus taught us how to pray in Matthew 6. He said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And then what did he say next? Thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. Does this injustice grieve the heart of God that we're seeing? When you flip on the news and you see injustice and ungodliness, does that make him sad? It breaks his heart. Whether it's his plan or not to change it tomorrow, I don't know. But I know that it grieves him to see injustice and immorality and things that are not truth and things that are not right. Are we praying for that to change? Esther and Mordecai not only prayed for it to change, but they took action. They were ready. They were ready and not just content to sit and wait for the persecution to come or to wait for the rapture, but they were ready to pray earnestly that God would change what we're seeing today. And God did it. God did it in miraculous fashion. Will he do it tomorrow? I can't tell you that. But I can tell you that he wants you to pray that he will. Now we're afraid, I think, at times to to uh, really go out there on a limb. Even in our prayer life, we're afraid to go out there on a, on a, on a limb. Let me read a short passage, a, a short little clip of a book. It's called uh, Don't Waste Your Life. It's nice, subtle. Subtle as a gun, right, Wes? Don't waste your life. And one of the paragraphs says, Therefore, it is right to risk for the cause of Christ. It's, in, it's right to engage the enemy and say, may the Lord do what seems good to him. It is right to serve the people of God and say, if I perish, I perish. It is right to stand before the fiery furnace of affliction and to refuse to bow down to the gods of this world. This is the road that leads to fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. At the end of every other road, secure and risk-free, we will put our face in our hands and say, I've wasted it. God is calling you to risk it all for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are very uncomfortable because God has designed and equipped some of you to teach the rest of us how to avoid risk. Do you realize that? And yet, even those of you that are most risk adverse among us, God is calling you to risk it all for Christ. Think about those missionaries, Jim Elliott and the others. Remember when they went down? Enormous risk. Enormous risk. They went to a completely unreached people 
that have all kinds of weapons and brutal culture of slaughtering and killing anyone that they felt like. Enormous risk. And these men dedicated their lives to connecting with these people, sharing the gospel with these people. Enormous risk. I wish I could tell you that story ended happy in the immediate. What happened to those men? They were slaughtered. They were destroyed physically by those very people they were trying to minister to. But what came after? Through even their death, the Lord did amazing miracles to work through that tribe and to save many and many and many more of those men and women. The very men that slaughtered those human beings that we revere and remember came to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. I wish I could tell you that every risk was going to end up happy here on earth. But I truly believe that those men are enjoying an eternal reward and a heavenly blessing that we can't understand until we get there. Will you risk it all for the Lord? God is calling us to take risk. Number one, we need to pray. Number two, we need to believe. We need to believe. We need to believe that God wants to do the impossible, that he can do the impossible, and that no matter how unlikely it seems, that he could turn this around in revival if he chooses to. Let's believe that. That's the second meaty application. Do we really believe that God could change what we see going as a country? He can. Whether he will or not remains to be seen. We'll take a risk believing that he wants to, and we're going to pray like crazy for that. Now, again, our backdrop is wonderful. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Our backdrop is wonderful. If instead he chooses to come back tomorrow, are you going to be disappointed? No. Praise the Lord. We have a no-lose situation, and yet we sit idle, unwilling to risk it for him. We got to change that. We got to get moving for the Lord, and we got to truly believe that he wants to continue to do amazing things. Three, we need to pursue righteousness and truth. Pursue righteousness and truth. Many of you are doing that. Many of you are doing that. This is not a passive standby kind of position here. I would pray urgently for God to show you how he wants you to run into the fray to minister. Let me share something about the early Christians. This is a quote. And of course, I got so excited. I pulled my bookmark. So bear with me. Bear with me. This is a quote of the early Christians during some of the the biggest time of persecution. This was uh, in A.D. 332. And the Roman Emperor Julian really wanted to get the pagan rituals of Rome back into their prevalence, back into the spotlight. So he was actively persecuting and pursuing that. And this is what he wrote. This is fascinating. This is what he wrote. He called Christians atheists, by the way. So when I say atheists, it's not what we understand. Why he thought Christians were atheists is they didn't believe in all of these gods. They believed in one God, okay? And he wrote, atheism, i.e. the Christian faith, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers, through their care for the burial of the dead. It's a scandal. There is not a single Jew who is a beggar. The the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. 
while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. This dude is so ticked and frustrated because the Christians that were being persecuted are actively running into the storm and living out Christianity. They're feeding the poor. They're helping the sick. They're comforting those that have had loss through death. Isn't that amazing? And it spoke volumes. It worked mightily. Listen to this. It's costly to follow Christ. There is risk everywhere. This very risk is the means by which the value of Christ shines more brightly. Are we taking risks, my brothers and sisters? I'll leave you with that last encouragement that risk it all for Christ by being the hands and the feet of Christ. Be active in how we minister. Be active in how we share the gospel through your actions, through your words. This is the time. This is the time to be bold and to not just stand, but to run headlong into the fray so that we can be used by God to flip the script and do amazing things. What will be the measure? Well, only God will know the measure of the miracle. Only God will be able to later report to you the fruit that your risk for him brought forth, right? But what if one person in Dubuque gets saved? Death to life. What if a young person struggling with their identity returns to a full, vibrant walk with the Lord through your bold and faith-filled effort to risk it all for Christ? Mordecai and Esther in chapter 6 and 7 saw one of the greatest turnarounds. Unbelievable. No chance to God completely changing the script. We'll hear more about that turnaround. But he used... They're bold, risky, running towards what he wanted. Will we follow? Will we pray in faith boldly? Will we believe that God will deliver? Will we pursue righteousness and truth? And will we be the hands and feet in an an aggressive, I'll say aggressive loving manner? Let's serve as many as we can. Let's serve as well as we can. Father, we come to you, a radical idea here, Lord, in the sense that you don't want us to just be safe. You want us to be godly. You want us to be pursuing your work. You want us to be risking it all for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. It's amazing as we look at the Apostle Paul, as we look at Christians throughout, even Esther, Lord, breaking the law to go see the king. And by your grace, you delivered her and allowed her to continue on this risky, unbelievable path of senior deliverance. Father, we are your children. And we've been discouraged. And I think we've been slowed by confusion and frustration. We've been slowed by uh, a difficulty to know who to listen to, to know who to trust. But Father, I really believe that that can turn, that this can be a glimpse of the dawn. In our lives especially, Lord, this can be our opportunity to, like Mordecai and Esther, boldly step out for you. To risk it all for the sake of Christ. Work in our hearts, give us wisdom, give us insight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.